Thank you for choosing to listen to the Hope Rock Church at Lake Travis podcast. For more resources and information on our church or our team, please go to www.hoperockchurch.com or find us on Facebook. Morning, church. It's good to be with you all this morning. If you're a visitor, it's good to have you here. My name is Marco. Uh, if you don't know me, Catherine, my better half. Uh, we get have the privilege of serving this amazing church, you all, and leading an amazing team with Crystal and Charlie and all the deacons. And it's just good that uh, God is moving. That's, that's my biggest sort of praise every week is that God shows up and does more all the time. So we just thank him and give him all the glory for what's happening here. Just some real quick announcements. If you are um, new to Hope Rock Church, haven't seen these announcements, let me just let you know what's happening this week or coming up. First of all, we're starting a doctrine and... Uh, dinner course. I keep seeing in my notes it says D&D. I was about to say Dungeons and Dragons course. Uh, but that's next time. Dory Clayton, I got you back there. We're doing a dinner and doctrine course, which is something that's going to happen every quarter. We're going to be focusing on how to pray this one, which is really just an hour Bible study. We will be serving pizza, or as you say here in America, pizza. Um, and we are also going to be providing childcare. So if you intend on coming and have little children that need to be taken care of, go into the Hope Rock Church uh, website or go to the app and just tell us if you're coming so we can make allowances and room for childcare. Second announcement is this Friday is Mother's Prayer Circle. It happens once a month, every last Friday of the month. Uh, it will be meet, there will be meeting from 8 to 9 a.m. If you need any information, because I keep butchering this announcement, so I'm not even going to carry on, come speak to Catherine afterwards. She will help you if you're a mom or a lady. She'll give you all the information. Uh, we also are looking for volunteers uh, for specific team in particular. We've always announced children's ministry, technical guys, and I think we, not that we have enough, but we have many there. Uh, there is a team headed up by Joe over there. Look at that guy. I mean, he's, he's a handsome man, that guy. He's looking for people to join his facilities team. Facilities are the guys that make all of this chair stuff happen, tents, you name it. Hey, Joe? Uh, in addition, Ashley is looking for volunteers for hospitality. So if you are able to make coffee, we need you. Uh, it's important. Believe me, coffee is the fundamental life force of what we do in the morning. So we need coffee makers. And if you like to eat donuts or serve donuts, this is the team for you. Please chat to Ashley afterwards. There is also on the back of your seats that QR code where you can also scan it if you're interested in volunteering in one of our teams. And you can just put your name down there, uh, say what you're interested in doing, and we'll make sure you get something very opposite to what you like doing. That's how we roll here. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. We'll make sure you serve where you want to be serving. Then last announcement. This is an exciting one, uh, something I've been praying for for many years. We've announced this to our deacons. We as a church feel like God is in this. And the announcement is, without you know, any more stalling here, we are going to be releasing new elders onto the life of this team. And so can you put your hands together to welcome Mark and Patty Batson, as well as Derek and Lindsay Mills, to this eldership team. They'll be joining us, uh, Charlie, Crystal, myself, and Kat on this eldership team. And it's exciting for me because God is releasing leadership, which means he's enlarging the place of our tent dwelling, right? He's giving us more leaders so we can reach more people. We see it all the time. When God raises up leaders, he releases influence. We saw that with the deacons we've just raised up and the deacon team that's growing. And so what we're going to ask you is if you could be praying for them as couples, the ordination will happen on the 14th of November at the 9 a.m. service. We do have one of our NCMR team members, Marcus Herbert, coming in to do the ordination. Uh, and so that's a great Sunday to be at if you can be there. He'll be coming to set them into place. And maybe just a little brief, quick overview of what we believe as a church, just to help you on this, because eldership might be a new thing for you. You might not understand it. We see this model in the book of Acts. So we try and follow as close as possible the model of church that we see in Scripture. 
And so what it means to be an elder is you carry the doctrine, discipline, and direction in the local church. Uh, in other words, it's the highest governmental authority that God has placed. Now, which of the people within the couples carries that authority? In Scripture, we see it carry, it's carried by the man. And so we ordain men as the elders. However, what we see from Genesis chapter 2 and 3 with Adam and Eve in the garden is that we do this as a team. I can't be an elder in this local church and function the way that I am functioning without Catherine there by my side. And so we do serve as a team. We function as a team. Believe me, she keeps me on track and she helps me head in the right direction. But the men carry the mantle of authority. But we anoint and we ordain them and we set them into place as couples. So it would be great for you guys to come and see that. It's really awesome, especially when we cut the blood and we start doing the bloody... I'm just joking. <laughs> We don't need any of that weird stuff. If you're visiting and thinking this guy's a lunatic, I'm never coming back again. Uh, anyway, okay, so let me start the clock. We're going to start over, uh, I mean, start again in our modern day Reformation series. Uh, this is a series that we've been in for the last few weeks. We've covered three of the five solas. If you are unaware of what a solar is, these are five truths, values that were discovered during the Reformation. The word solar means alone. In other words, these were statements that could stand on their own. These were statements that were not new by any shape or form. They were always in Scripture, but they were rediscovered. The three that we've covered already, the first one was sola scriptura, which basically tells us that the Word of God, this Word that we see here, is completely 100% authoritative in our lives. It is the inspired Word of God. It is inerrant. It is complete. It is finished. You cannot add to it. You cannot remove from it. And we live our lives by this word. This church is committed to preaching God's word in its entirety. The good stuff, the hard stuff to hear, and everything in between. The second solo that we went through was sola gratia. Charlie did a great job of reminding us that it's by grace alone that we are saved. And grace is a gift from God. It's not something we earn. It's not something we can buy. It's given to us by God and what he did on the cross. Then last week, Sunday, we looked at faith, sola fide, which is it's by faith alone that we are saved. Whose faith? It's actually Jesus' faith that we are saved. That's the beautiful exchange. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul reminds us of this. He says in verse 8, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no one may boast. This is what we covered last week. Jesus, his faith to our faith gives us the ability to find our salvation. This revelation frees us in two main ways. And I said this last week, and I'm just recapping for everyone's benefit because it's important that we get this. The two ways it frees us is firstly, we have to understand that our salvation is secure. Once you are in Christ, you cannot be taken out of Christ. Once he gives you new life, you cannot become dead again. Once you are born again, you can't be unborn. And so if you're here this morning and you've made Jesus your personal Lord and Savior, you've followed his commandments, you've honored his request, you've believed with your heart and confessed with your mouth, then guess what? You are saved and no one and nothing can take that away from you. Stop letting the enemy tell you that you are losing your salvation day by day because you are doubting who you are. If it's a gift, it's been given. And so we can do nothing to get it, which means we can do nothing to lose it. The second thing that it frees us in is this reality that when it comes to evangelizing the lost, we don't save people. We preach the gospel. That's our job. Our job is to take the message to the lost. God does the saving. We do the sowing. And so we need to be free in those two things. That was, that's what these two last solas that we've done dis, uh, to help us discover. And it's in rediscovering all of these very simple yet foundational truths that this series is all about. It's about bringing forward those truths from the Reformation and reminding us as a modern-day church what they mean to us today. And I say that to you because if we are completely honest with ourselves, what we have to understand is that there are elements of church life where we can allow other things to become more important than the fundamentals of Scripture or the fundamentals of grace or the fundamentals of faith, where we can allow other things to set themselves up as little idols that we worship. 
And I'm not just speaking about other churches out there. It can happen here too. And so bringing these truths forward help us to break down those things that have seated themselves in positions higher than Christ. Jeremiah the prophet, he was often called the weeping prophet. And there's no doubt that he was weeping because he was always being shouted at by everybody. Um, That guy lived a really difficult existence. In fact, Jeremiah 1 verse 9 gives us a little bit of insight as to his call. God says to him, behold, I've put words in your mouth, Jeremiah. See, I've set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down. Imagine God told you that, that he called you to pluck things up and to break things down. You're like, hallelujah, yes, Lord, send me. I'll do that. I'll just go shout at everyone, tell them they're doing a terrible job. But guess what? We need to do that sometimes. He says to destroy and to overthrow. But then he says to build and to plant. See, it's unhelpful to break things down without building things up. And so what we do is we bring down any, any truth that is opposing the truth that we find in Scripture. And then we trust God to build up the right truth. We trust Jesus to build up a truth that resembles the bride that he wants to come back for. And so on this journey, going through this Reformation series, it's about us maturing as a bride. It's about us getting one step closer to seeing the return of our King. Because what we do know is Jesus will come back when we are mature. Until then, we need to wait and we need to keep persevering. We need to keep fighting this good fight. So let's pray uh, and then we can jump into the next solo. Heavenly Father, thank you for every person present in this room and online. I pray, Father, that you would open up our minds to hear your word. I pray that any distractions from this week would be removed, perhaps even distractions from this morning. Anything that's right now consuming us or taking our eyes off you and putting them on something else, because that's the strategy of the enemy. I pray that you would help us to forget those things. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see, Lord, what it is that you want us to see and hear today. Let the word that is preached fall on good soil. We know that it will never return void. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to pack, unpack, not pack, we're going to unpack the fourth sola this morning, which is solus Christus, or Christ alone. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid in Christ Jesus. And there we have the beginning of the solo. There is no foundation on which the church can be built besides Jesus Christ. There is also no cornerstone around which the church can be constructed besides Jesus Christ. The cornerstone is the first stone that gets placed in any construction, in any building. And what it does is determine the length and breadth, the diameter of the building that's being built around it. And what Paul is telling us is if we get this foundation wrong, if we get the wrong idea of who Jesus is and we build our church on a wrong concept of God, we will be in trouble. In addition, if we turn Jesus into somebody that we've crafted out of our own making, someone that we want him to be, but not someone who he truly is, what we'll end up with in this local church is something that looks very different to the church that Jesus wants. And so our job is to build on the foundation, to build on the cornerstone, and his name is Jesus. And so let's understand, in the context of the Reformation, what did Solus Christus even mean? Why did it have to come about? Why did the church fight for this particular value? Why did Luther and the rest of the Reformers fight for this value? Well, during the time of the Reformation, the church at that stage taught that salvation was gained through sacraments. So the Eucharist, the celebration of math, mass, not maths. You can't be saved by maths. I'm just letting anyone know. Maths, no ways, bro. Mm. Maths is bad. I'm just kidding. If you, I love maths. Okay, love. The Eucharist, mass, infant baptism, all of these sacraments were the mechanism by which you got saved. That's what they told people. In addition, what they told people was that you couldn't go to God yourself. It was impossible. You had no direct access to God. You were blocked, shut off, can't go there. In fact, how you got to God 
was you had to go through a priest. You needed a mediator, somebody who was holy enough to be able to take your request to God. And if it wasn't a priest, then the Virgin Mary needed to take your request to God. And if it wasn't the Virgin Mary, then it was a pantheon of saints that were to represent you and your case before God the Father. In other words, secular, normal people like you and I were hopeless when it came to reaching God for ourselves because we were shut out completely from him. And the only way we could get there was to use sacred, special, man-made systems, beliefs, or even church offices. Now, to be clear, before we are too hard on the church, that church of that day, we have to remember that this is not a new phenomenon. They didn't invent this type of worship. In fact, the author of Hebrews was dealing with the exact same thing 1,500 years before that church even existed. He says this in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Notice there's an unbelieving, evil heart that leads us to fall away from the living God. What does that mean? It means that there is an opportunity for us in our lives to move away from the truth of Scripture to something that's not true. He goes on in verse 14 to say this, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Our job is to hold first hold fast to the confidence of who Jesus is and what he's done. You see, what the author of Hebrews was dealing with at that time was a group of people that had entered the church, the early church called Judaizers, and what they were trying to convince people was that the cross was not sufficient. In fact, the cross was somehow broken. In fact, Jesus wasn't enough. You needed Jesus plus something else. It was great that you were saved, but guess what? Now you've got to keep your salvation and maintain it. And maybe you really aren't saved. And so let's prove that you're saved by making sure we all know that you're holy. In the context of the book of Hebrews, they wanted the believers to become more Jewish again. And so they'd just gone from Judaism to Christianity, giving their hearts to the Lord. Now they're saying, okay, now you've got to go backwards to become more Jewish again. Follow the system of the law. Follow the old covenant. Go back to the old covenant. The old system that says that you needed a high priest to mediate between you and God. And a priest that would also offer sacrifices on your behalf. Sacrifices that would become the mechanism of people's atonement. Jesus was no longer enough. Hebrews 5 verse 1 explains to us what these priestly functions were. He says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And so if these people were going to go backwards in the old covenant, the author is saying, just remember what these priests did. They were responsible for three key functions. First functions was mediation. They were the intermediary between you and God. Why? Because you were shut out from God because of your sin. So this is what Old Testament priests did. They spoke to God for you. Great. The second thing that they did was they took the sacrifices that you would bring to pay for your sins, and they would offer them to God, which would then bring you salvation. So it's three things, mediation, sacrifice, and salvation. That's the job of an Old Testament priest. But what we know today and what the church in Luther's day should have known then was that the Old Covenant was a picture of something that was coming. God, by design, never intended the old covenant to be there forever. He designed it so we could see that one day he would send the perfect, the Savior that would come and redeem everything that the old covenant pointed towards so that it would be gone and finished and we could just trust in him. And so it's crazy to think that a few hundred years after Jesus and all the original apostles died out, maybe about 900 to 1,000 years, the church had gone right back to that place where Jesus was no longer enough and now they wanted priests again. Solus Christus is the reversal of that belief. It's the reminder of us this, to us this morning that it's the revelation, proclamation, 
and understanding that Jesus alone is our high priest and that we can have a relationship to God, with God, through Jesus Christ and through nobody else. And so this morning, in the time that we have left, I want to use the functions from an Old Testament priest perspective to use to show us that there is only one person in all of existence that can satisfy those three requirements, and that person is Jesus. So the first point for this morning is this. Jesus alone is the mediator between man and God. Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, from verse 5. In fact, we'll just read verse 5. He says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. It can't be any clearer than that, right? If you're confused, if you're wondering, do I need somebody to speak to God on my behalf? This is crystal clear. There is one mediator between God and man, and that man is Christ Jesus. The word mediator in the Greek is the word mesites, which means a go-between, literally an intermediary, the man in the middle. We don't like those people if you're buying cars, right? You want to buy direct. But in this case, we need a man in the middle. Not a human man, not a person on this earth. We need a man that can provide us with something that nobody else can provide. What am I saying by that? Well, when we read how this word is used to describe people, it's generally used in two ways. One, a mediator according to the definition of the word, is used to bring peace when parties are at odds with each other. So if you have an argument with, hopefully not your wife, but let's just imagine someone, your worker, your employees, your supplier, and you can't get to an agreement, you call in a mediation party. They come in and they try and mediate. Kelsey's laughing at me. I don't know why. But you mediate, you mediate between the parties. That's what a mediator does, right? Now imagine, think of the context of our sin. Our sin has separated us from God. There is an element of no peace there before Christ. And so Jesus comes in and mediates our relationship with God. He provides peace. The second thing we use, to or this word is used to describe, is somebody who acts as a guarantor. If I can't afford to go and buy uh, a piece of equipment or a house, but Jeremy is willing to be my guarantor, he can come and co-sign with me. He can guarantee that, the, that we will be good to pay the price. That's what Jesus did for us in our salvation. He brought peace and he paid the price for our sins. Another way of looking at Jesus is as a bridge. I was saying it earlier, but you know the Pennybacker Bridge is the bridge that goes over the Colorado. It's not a, it's not a really big river, right? I mean, let's be honest. I mean, I know it's awesome, it's beautiful, it's here, but there's bigger bridges in the world. But let's just use that bridge for an example. In order for a bridge to be effective, two things need to happen. Well, one thing, really. Two anchors need to exist, and it needs to be anchored on both sides of whatever it's connecting. For a bridge to work, it has to be anchored on both sides of what it's connecting. Think about that for a second. You see, we often so easily put our trust in man to mediate for us with God, but how can man mediate on our behalf? Man is only connected to us. So come in Jesus, right? Jesus, who had one foot planted in eternity, one foot planted in this humanity, who was fully man and fully God, is actually the only bridge that can ever work between us and God. We can't get to God any other way. We have to go through Jesus Christ. He's the only person in all of existence who was fully man and fully God. Therefore, the only one that can reconcile us to God. And so if anyone ever tells you that you need to go through them, you need to understand something that they're lying. We see this in Africa a lot. We see it where people put themselves up into these high positions of authority, where they tell you that you've got to use their abilities to get to God. And it's not just in third world countries. We see it in the church today. It's just a little bit more subtle. Be very careful of that. It's across this bridge, Christ alone, that we can come into the presence of God knowing that we are accepted because Jesus is our mediator. He has brought us both peace and he's paid the price. 
And I think we've all heard this to a certain extent. If you're a believer today, if you have accepted Jesus into your heart, you've heard this teaching before. This is not new to you. It's not revolutionary. I haven't given you anything that you probably didn't learn in Sunday school already. However, let me say this to you. Truly believing that Jesus is our mediator is a lot harder than we think. Why would the church consistently go back to priestly models if it was easy just to believe in Jesus as our mediator? Think about it. People wouldn't be deceived all the time. But it's hard for us to trust that Jesus is enough. And I'll prove it to you by asking us some questions. The first question is this. Where does your identity as a Christian come from? Think about it. If I had to say to you, where does your identity as a Christian come from? Does it come from the fact that you're born into a Christian home? That you were brought up in the church? Maybe it's because you live in a Christian nation. I speak to a lot of people who call themselves Christians today because they think that living in America makes them Christian. Or are we Christians because we truly and honestly and every day of our lives follow the Lord Jesus for ourselves, that we have a relationship with God? You see, if it's anything else than that, then there's something in between us and God. But what about this one? When we face difficulties, challenges, hardships in life, when your world is literally falling apart, who do you turn to first? Do you turn to your wife or your husband? Do you phone the bank for an increase to your overdraft? Who is it? Who's the first port of call? Who's that first person that comes into your mind when your world's falling apart? Is it something other than Jesus Christ? If it is, that person has become the mediator between you and God. What about this one? Where do we turn to to hear from God? When we want to hear a word from God, where do we go? Well, I'll tell you what I do. I switch on TBN. That's where I go. There's nothing. I'm just kidding. I'm, not, I'm just. But I mean, the point is, do we go to a preacher? Do we go to YouTube and search up, say, I'm looking for an answer on whether or not I should buy the next car and wait for somebody to pop up and say, there we go, God spoke to me. Do we go to you know, a, a professional counselor and say, what is God saying to me? Do we go to you know, somebody of notoriety and say, what is God saying to you? Do we need a prophet to tell us what God wants us to do? Or can we pick up the Bible and say, Lord, I need you to speak to me and spend time with the Lord waiting for him to reveal something to you by the power of his Holy Spirit? I'm saying this to you not because I get all of these, these things right, but because I get all of them wrong. I do this all the time. These three things that I mentioned to you, I'm talking about myself. Often, I put other things in the way of God, and you have to realize it, that we do it at times. And so be, finding mediators is something that the enemy wants us to do all the time because he wants us to feel like we're not good enough to reach God ourselves. But what Scripture tells me is that Jesus did it. He is the mediator. He has provided the bridge that we can cross. And nothing and no one can take it away from us. I'll prove this to you. During the Last Supper, Jesus said to his disciples a couple of things. We're going to read from John 14 and 15. In verse 11, he said, Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in him. That's great. Sounds amazing, Mark. What does that have to do with me? Well, he says in verse 20, In that day, you will know that I'm in my Father and you are in me, and I am in you. So not just Jesus in the Father and the Father is in Jesus. Now we are in Jesus, which technically means we are in the Father. Right? Then in verse 4 of chapter 15, he says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. We are connected to Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is that when he is in us, we are in him. Nothing and no one can take that away from us. Again, like salvation, the moment we are resurrected from the dead, given newness of life. Colossians says this about it. Colossians 1 verse 17, he says that Christ in us is the hope of glory. We are living with the incarnate God in us, not incarnate, but we are living with Jesus Christ living inside of us, empowering us, filling us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
And so every time you feel like you need to put something else before you and God, remind yourself that Jesus is in me. And only he can give me the answers that I need. We don't need a priest. We certainly don't need to go back to Moses. We don't need a prophet. We don't need Aaron. And we don't need the man of the hour, wherever it is in the United States or anywhere in the world, who's got the next best revelation. Because what scripture tells me is that we're actually all priests. 1 Peter 2 verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Because of Jesus, friends, there is no separation between the sacred and the secular. If you're unsure what that means, it was a teaching that existed during that time of Luther that people were holy or people weren't holy. And if you weren't in the church, you were just a normal common peasant. Had nothing to do with God. God wanted nothing to do with you. You needed me to go there. What scripture teaches me is that there is no separation between the sacred and the secular anymore. Why? Because whether I'm a pastor in the local church, whether I'm an apostle, an evangelist, a preacher or a teacher, what I do has got nothing to do with who I am. You see, who we are is a holy nation. A people set apart for his own possession. We are sons and daughters of the living God. Every single one of us in this room, whether you're the CEO of a company, whether you are a mother that stays at home homeschooling your children, whether you are a custodian in any building, you are a king's kid and you are a priest in the kingdom of God of equal worth to every other priest in the kingdom. There is no better, there is no worth, there is no higher, there is no lower. No pastor is better than you, no pope is better than you because we're all equal in the sight of God. And it tells me because we're all priests that we're all called to be ministers. Not just on Sunday mornings, when we come to church, when we put our Christian hats on and our best behavior, or at a life group, or at a prayer meeting. We are called to be ministers, to proclaim the excellencies of Him who saved us. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days of the year. You do not need a pastor to pray for your sick friend or for somebody that doesn't have salvation. You go and do it because you're a priest. You are the intermediary between the lost and the kingdom of heaven. Every one of us stand in the gap for those around us because we have taken that place in Christ. Christ in us is the hope of glory. And so Jesus is our mediator. Second thing that he does is he's our sacrifice. The Old Testament picture of a, of a priest was somebody who brought offerings to, to God, right? They would take the offerings. Initially, they took them to the tabernacle in the wilderness. But once the temple was built, they took it to the temple and they offered these sacrifices. It was very elaborate, very crazy. I mean, lots of blood, lots of places where blood was thrown and scattered everywhere. It must have looked pretty gory. I've got to be honest. Could never happen in this day and age. Bro, you'd have people protesting outside the camp all day. How could you do that to the dove? It's terrible. I'm not going to tell you whether it's right or wrong. My point being is that that's how they sacrificed. In Luther's time, the church did exactly the same thing. They just got rid of the sacrifices. There was no more blood, unless it was people's bloods who they said were heretic. But there was no more blood. What they did was they converted this system into sacraments, sacraments of confession, penance, and absolution. So these sacraments were, confession was that I would go and I'd stand before, sit before in a box with a priest and I would confess my sins. I would tell them what I'd done. Forgive me, Father, for I've sinned. It's been however long since my last confession. That's important, right? Because if it's been a long time, you've got a lot of penance to do. And so you try to keep your confessions as close together as possible because you never know what's going to happen, right? And so you'd confess your sins. Tell a man who's actually no better than you, who's actually the same as you. And yes, the Bible says confess your sins one to another, but it's not so that you can forgive me. It's so that I can liberate myself and say, stand with me and believe with me for my, for my total you know, healing from this particular behavior. And so we confess our sins. And then the priest gives us a penance. Okay, well, you did this, Marco. Mm, that's pretty bad. According to this, you've got to do 16,000 Hail Marys. 
right? And you've got to pay me $6,000 because it's really expensive what you did. For real, I mean, I'm making a light of it, but that's what would happen. You'd pay your indulgence and you'd be free from that. And then there was a special thing that happened. It was called absolution. Absolution was the process where the priest would say, your sins have been forgiven. Go and sin no more, which is impossible, right? If that was the case, we would never come back to confession, which seems quite crazy to say then. Your sins are forgiven. In that moment in time, the church taught that the priest in that moment was in persona Christi, which meant they were actually Jesus Christ. Because only Jesus can forgive sins. So in that moment in time, they absorbed and became Jesus to you in that second. Now the challenge with this, and you can see where this fails, is that you can only be in a state of grace, which is when you are absolved for a certain period of time. Once I've told you what my sins are, literally, probably the very next second, my brain already goes to something I shouldn't be thinking about. Boom, I'm out of a state of grace. If you die not in a state of grace, you're in trouble. You're probably going to go to hell. And so what happens is you start this, you're like a, a, a mouse on one of those Ferris wheels. What do you, I mean, Ferris wheels, what do you call those things? Hamster wheels. Okay, maybe a hamster on a hamster wheel. You're just running in this thing all the time, trying to get God to forgive you over and over and over and over again, because you're never actually going to be able to live in a state of grace. And so both the Old Testament and the medieval church systems taught that forgiveness of sins depended on sacrifices that were created and given by man. And that only priests could mediate them and forgive them. But there had to have been a better way. And there was. And it was always in the Bible. The problem is nobody could read the Bible for themselves. And so Hebrews 10 verse 1. And this is what the reformers did for us. They helped remind us of this truth. It says this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. Instead of the true form of these realities. It can never. The law can never. By the same sacrifices that are continually offered. Year after year. Make perfect those who draw near. The author is telling us that the law is a shadow. There is nothing of substance in your shadow. It looks amazing. It's you, but you can't do anything with your shadow. It's just there, right? You can't take it. You can't change it. And what he's saying is that the law was never designed to save you. You think, but what about Abraham? What about Moses? They only had the law, but they weren't saved by the law. They were saved by faith. They were justified by faith, looking forward to a promise of one day that God would fulfill what he said they would do. Nobody was saved by the law. The law was a reminder that you are broken, sinful human beings. But one day I'll send a Savior who will fix it all. That was the promise from day one in Genesis. You'll see it. Otherwise, verse 2, would they not have ceased to be offered? In other words, if my sacrifices were good enough, would they have not been ceased to be offered? Of course they would have. Why? Because... If I offered a sacrifice and I paid for my sins, it was done. Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. There's two revelations that we need to see in this short two verses. First is, the law can never produce. Any type of works-based system can never produce a heart of worship. Why? Because guilt is not a great motivator to worship the king. God does not want you to worship him because you feel guilty. Please be free. If you feel guilty this morning and that's why you're here, God doesn't want you here because you feel guilty. I'll clarify that point shortly. But the second thing he shows us is that this whole process of going to confession, sinning, coming back to confession, sinning, coming back, is a, is a process of repeating failures, right? It's a constant reminder that what Jesus did on the cross wasn't good enough. It wasn't sufficient. You see, in the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement reminded people that sin had not been dealt with yet. That the Messiah was coming. But the Messiah came. The old covenant is gone. We're in the new covenant. And so what the Lutheran church, or the church during Luther's age did, was remind people that, guess what? The cross wasn't enough either. The cross was not sufficient. Jesus isn't enough. And so you have to go to Jesus, but then you have to come to confession too. 
in my book, when I read this Bible, it tells me that the cross is completely sufficient and that what was done on the cross is perfect. Now, I want to say this to you. The author of Hebrews is not telling us that we will never be convicted of sin. It is showing us how we can be stuck in guilt. People that are stuck in this system of works are guilty all the time. They doubt their salvation every moment of every single day. But in the new covenant, we are freed, but we will be convicted of sin. But conviction is a good thing. Why? Because A, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It shows us sin in our hearts. And what does conviction do? It leads us to the cross again, not for salvation, but to lay our sins down at the foot of the cross, knowing that Christ has already saved us and forgiven us. Guilt leads to remorse, which leads to condemnation, which leads to death. Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus. He felt super guilty. And what did, where did that get him? He died, hung himself on a tree. That's what condemnation does. But the enemy loves it because he wants to heap it on you every day. Peter denied Christ, not once, not twice, but three times. And when he saw Jesus after he was resurrected, he ran to Christ. Didn't run away from him. Conviction causes us to run to God. Guilt causes us to run away from God. And so I said, if you're here this morning out of guilt, you probably aren't. Because guilty people don't come to church. I want you to be free this morning. Hebrews 10 verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then in verse 10 he says, for we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. No sacrifice that you will ever bring to God will ever be good enough. If you're trying to fix your life with what you can give to God, don't bother. It's not good enough. Jesus told us. In Isaiah it says, your, your good deeds are like filthy rags. Don't bother with them, please. I'm not interested in sacrifices. I'm interested in your heart. I'm interested in the fact that you believe that what I said is true, that you've accepted what I've done because it is finished. Jesus' sacrifice was once and for all. Hebrews 10 verse 14, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds. In verse 17, no more. For where there is forgiveness of these, your sins, my sins, all of our sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. We cannot offer anything for our sins anymore, friends. It is done. It is finished. Jesus said so on the cross. John 19.30, when Jesus had received the Sawan, he said, it is finished. Stop trying to add to what Jesus did. It's Jesus plus nothing, friends. You know, Jesus on the cross, in that moment when he said, it is finished, you know what he was saying? He was saying, I have borne the full brunt, the full brunt of the indignation and the wrath of God on me for everybody's sins. Past, present, and future. I have paid the price. I have met the cost. And you know what? I'm done. It's finished. Stop fighting. Stop striving. Stop making yourself seem better than you are because you're not. You don't need to. I have done it all for you. You are good in me. Christ in us is the hope of glory. And so let me ask you the question. Do you believe that it's finished? Do you believe it? I, I sometimes struggle to believe that it's finished. Do you trust that the work of the cross is enough in your life? Or do you find yourself consistently tempted to want to do more? To make God love you some more? To make him look upon you with great big eyes and say, oh, I love them more. So you try and do these things. I know they don't mess us up all the time. Because guess what happens when we sin? When we do something wrong, we're often tempted to try and make it right by doing good things. And then we keep this balance sheet running in our head, right? And then all of a sudden, guess what? It's lost because now we've got this balance sheet. I've done more good than bad this week. It's been a good week. We can't do that. There is no balance sheet. The balance sheet's gone. It's done on the cross. Or when we sin, we feel like God loves us less. Have you ever felt it? Have you ever felt like God loves you less? Nobody. I, I have. 
But for real, have you? Have you had put your hand up? I've felt like God's loved me less. I have let the devil tell me that God loves me less. It happened to me this week. Preparing this message. How's that? Because I was like, man, you know, I know, I don't even want to go there. But I was convicted this week. And I was reminded when I was preparing this that I was like, the, the Lord was like, isn't it interesting that this whole week you've been complaining to me, crying, whining, you know, using reverse psychology. I'm terrible, Lord. I'm terrible. I didn't prepare enough. I'm this, blah, blah. God is enough. Jesus is enough. The enemy's out there. He wants you to be doubting all the time. But remember, Jesus has offered a complete sacrifice once and for all. He's reconciled us to God. We don't need to be reconciled to God anymore. His sacrifice was for all time. We're going to break bread later on this morning. In fact, that's why we break bread. We break bread not so that we can maintain our salvation. And that's why we don't, interesting enough, we don't break bread every week. And we don't do that. Why? Because I don't want you to believe that this is a liturgy, that somehow if you don't have communion, you have lost your salvation. We don't do this to maintain our salvation. In fact, if you are saved and you never have communion ever again in your life, you still go to heaven. We do this to remember that what Jesus did on the cross is final. It's finished. We look back. He says, do this and remember what was done for you on the cross. Not ask me again to forgive you and make you clean. No, remember, it's finished. The third and final point, I'm going to close, Mark, you guys can come up. Is that not only is Jesus our mediator and our complete and total sacrifice, but he alone can save us. There is salvation in nothing else. Derek said it earlier, he read it from the book of Acts. There is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus puts it, Another way, in John 14, 6, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I want to take us on a little bit of a different tack this morning, and I know I'm a little bit over time, but just bear with me for a second. I want you to know that the world has convinced believers to stop speaking about this. The world has got us believing that if we talk about this, we might offend somebody. And so we must stop saying it. The world wants you to believe that tolerance equals love. Do you know that tolerance is the opposite of love? When I tolerate my son's sin, I don't love him. If I watch my son doing something that I know is going to lead to death, and I say, oh, don't offend him, please don't say anything, you know, please just help him out a little bit. I mean, we don't want to get him angry. Do I love him? No. Tolerance has got nothing to do with love. Love is looking at the friend that God has put in your life and speaking to them from a place of love and saying, Jesus is the only way. When we look at a world that's dying and headed to hell, we have a choice to make. We can tell them the truth or we cannot tell them the truth. The end result is either hell or heaven. There's no good people on this earth. There's only lost and saved people. And so when we speak from a position of love and we tell people Jesus is the, way, the only way, we are recognizing that once we were lost. But guess what? We've been saved. Not by what I've done, not by what I could do, not by my own faith, but by amazing grace. That God would love a wretched man like me. That message needs to be spoken about. We've confused a whole lot of things and we're scared of the world and scared of offending people. We need to be bold. We don't tolerate demonic activity in the church. We don't tolerate the lies that the enemy wants to put forward and make believers believe or the lost believe. We will stand against those things. Yes, we will preach what we stand for, but we will stand against things that need to be broken down. That's what the reformers did. They saw an injustice and they stood up and they said, no more, no further. Jesus 
is the way. He is the truth and He is the life. And what that means is that there is no religious figure, figure that can save you. No Buddha, no Muhammad, no Krishna, no Confucius is going to save you. Only Jesus can. It means that there is no system or political system or ideology that can save you. There is no Trump, no Biden, no conservatives, no Republican, no democracy, no socialism, no communism will ever be able to save you. Only Jesus can because he's the way. It means that no religious system can save you. Not this church or any other church can save you. Only Jesus can save you because he is the way. We need to tell people that. He says that he's the truth. Not humanism, atheism, agnosticism, your truth, my truth, our truth. No, he is the truth. Do you want to know what the truth is? One word, Jesus. And he says that he's the life. We live in a society that is consumed with lifestyle. We think that the happier we are means the more stuff we have. And so we think our lifestyle will save us. No amount of wealth, no amount of success, no amount of poverty. No amount of good deeds, no amount of education, no amount of children will ever be able to save you. Only Jesus can. I'm going to close with this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He responds to what Paul said in Romans 10. He said, everyone who believes will not be put to shame, he believes in Christ. And Spurgeon says this, if thou puttest one atom of trust in thyself, thou hast no faith. That's it, you have no faith. If thou dost place even a particle of reliance upon anything else but what Christ did, thou hast no faith. If thou dost trust in thy works, then thy works are anti-Christ against God. And Christ and anti-Christ can never go together. Christ will have all or nothing. He must be our whole Savior or no Savior at all. Solus Christus means that Jesus alone is sufficient. We can't add to his mediation. We can't add to his sacrifice. And we certainly can't add to his salvation. Jesus plus nothing. Jesus minus nothing. That's what we celebrate in this church. And I'm asking you all to keep us as a church firmly planted on that foundation. Thank you for listening to the Hope Rock Church at Lake Travis podcast. We are a church that is passionate about knowing Christ and making Him known in our city, the nation, and the ends of the earth. For more information on who we are, please go to www.hoperockchurch.com or find us on Facebook.